from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Friday podcast. So, guys, great news before we jump into this. Mm-hmm. Joanna had a very healthy baby boy this last week. Congratulations Back to attack. her. Yeah, his name is uh, Mac, which I love. And she and Evan are doing well and are short for McLean. Um, and they are doing really well, and she's adjusting to, you know, parenthood. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how well in the future. You, but you laugh now, Adam, but we're going to be laughing at you in a couple months. I know, I know. Not even a couple months now, a couple weeks. But um, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's going to come fast. But uh, but yeah, she uh, she's doing great. So um, you know, if you want to wish her uh, a congrats, feel free. She's, you know, hit her up in her DMs on Instagram. Say hey, and uh, or, or send us a message to her here, podcast.com. But hopefully, we'll, we'll have her back in the in the next few months. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Congrats, Joanna and Evan. And uh, so, something that in, in, in under the category of no one is fucking surprised about this. <laughs> turns out the Oregon Liquor Control Commission have been very bad people, and they have been uh, squirreling away bottles of Pappy and Elmer T. Lee, etc., for themselves instead of the releasing them to the state lottery system, which they are supposed to do under the Oregon ethics laws. Uh, so Oregon is one of those states where the uh, the government still runs all of the the, the liquor stores like Pennsylvania, like Alabama, uh, New Hampshire is a very famous one. And turns out that high level members of the commission had been instructing people in the warehouse to hold bottles for them, pulling them out of the you know general inventory that was supposed to be available to uh, Oregon residents that could you know enter a lottery system in order for the right to buy these bottles at the actual fair market price right so not at these crazy i mean anyone can buy a bottle of pappy as long as you have thousands of dollars right but this yeah. was uh you know being able to buy pop- pappy at actually what it's listed at which is you know for for the highest end pappy it's like i think only 229 dollars a bottle is yeah. what it's supposed to retail for um and so you know they've been holding them for themselves and then you know taking them which is a big no-no but i mean besides the fact that we covered it and everyone else covered it because it's just like god this is, this is just this is just so ridiculous i mean are we fucking surprised at all zach i mean i feel like this probably happens in the in the states that aren't control states either where someone tells the, the distributor tells a buddy to ho- hold a few bottles for them like you know, this is this is what happens in this three tier system. <laughs> like it just is what it is. And when these these whiskeys are so in demand, yeah. I mean, I would be curious to know if, in light of this story coming out, if there has been some investigation done in some of the other control states. Because I, well, I agree with you that I am sure that lots of sort of uh, shenanigans are going on everywhere involving these very desirable bottles. I think it's a little different when it's state employees holding you know, sort of privileging themselves and taking advantage of the state inventory for their own benefit, as opposed to not that it's like great if, uh, you know, a manager at a distributor in, uh, you know, California or Washington or whatever is doing the same thing with this stock, but it's a, it's not, they're not defrauding the public in a kind of meaningful way. Exactly. It's maybe, you know, if you're a, if you're a liquor store operator in one of those states, you might be a little grumpy if, you know, you're getting one less bottle of Pappy than you thought you might be able to, but you can't really, it's just, it's a little bit of a different beast. But no, the the problem here is the there's just too much 
secondary value for these bottles to expect that people are not going to, you know, that people are going to behave honorably, unfortunately. I mean, I, I, the story when it broke was funny to me because Oregon is one of these weird states where it's like, it's, it's an even more complicated or at least stranger, I think, control state than many because like Oregon, the OLCC buys all the spirits that come into the state and then sells them to stores that have their own inventory. It's like the state doesn't even operate the liquor stores, which like when I was growing up, Washington was a control state until probably a decade ago now or something like that. So like even as an adult, I have lived in Washington state when it was both a control state where like literally you went to buy liquor, you went to a store that the Washington state government ran and the sign on the like store just said liquor. It was pretty wild. Um, and now we live in a world where the liquor sales are privatized. So, you know, you can buy liquor at your grocery stores, you can buy liquor at specialty liquor stores, etc. And the and Oregon has always had this weird like the the state government is the sort of buyer of note for the state but then sells or releases to privately run stores. So there's so there's that element of like it doesn't come off as a control state in the same way that some of the ones you mentioned, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, et cetera, do, but it is, and it creates even, I think, weirdly more potential for this kind of mischief because what these people at the OLCC did was basically they were like, it wasn't even as, as um, it was kind of like weirdly not as straightforward as like a system where they were like, oh yeah, that bottle of uh, Pappy just kind of disappeared. Huh? I wonder what happened to it. It was like, no, we're going to route it to liquor stores near our homes and we're going to know exactly when it shows up. And we probably even have, you know, kind of a relationship with the store operator and they're just going to sell it to us at retail price. And it's just this like, you know, it's like in a way, in a way that kind of petty government corruption is always to me a little funny. Like it, it is funny. It's, you know, maybe not great. It's certainly, it's certainly not great. No, but it's funny in a way because it's sort of, it's just not very creative and like relatively. It's it obviously took very little uh, investigation for the government to sort of realize what was going on once they got a tip that yeah. people were doing this. It was like, oh look, we saw that all of these bottles are going to this one liquor store. Huh. I wonder why that is. And um, it did not take long for them to basically find any kind of evidence. All of the people involved have either you know resigned or been fired or whatever. But the bigger, yeah, but the bigger thing for me, and I think the thing that we wanted to talk about a little bit is like, is there any way at all to rein in the secondary market for, for these spirits? Because I think that's really where the the problem lies, right? If, if this was, you know, the, the problem here is not just that people are getting these desirable bottles at that, you know, without them necessarily being available to the general public. Although that is obviously a problem. The other problem is that these things are not. You know, there's nothing that we know of stopping someone from taking one of these bottles that they that they directed to themselves. They paid, to be fair, fair retail price for. It's not like they stole it, but they are in this, in essence, stealing whatever the value is between what they paid for at retail and what they could immediately turn around and sell it for on the secondary market. And there, that's the problem, right? It's that these bottles go for 10x their retail value if you find the right outlet. Yeah, I mean, I think. That's what's so crazy. I, I I think also like here's what's really interesting to me is like I think Sazerac's actually part of the problem here. Like interesting. Why? Because I get that they're saying that they're pricing this at this, you know, at the price they think is fair. But at some point, guys, like maybe just price it higher. <laughs> and 
then people wouldn't go crazy for it. Like maybe that it would then sit on the on these shelves. Maybe price it for actually what people are willing to pay in these crazy secondary markets. Like I, I think I guess I think a lot about uh, Whistlepig, and that's what they do with Boss Hog. Is they say like mm-hmm. we price this at what you know at this high end price that people are actually willing to pay. Like interesting, we do, and you know maybe that would solve some of this. I, I don't know. And look, then I'm sure Sazerac is very, really is terrified of looking like they're taking price here, but I don't know what another solution is at, at some point, like a $225. I think you, you sent me the, um, in the, in one of the news in, in the actual Willamette Valley, uh, news article about this. I think they showed what the prices are supposed to be mm-hmm. like, what, yeah. what were the prices? I mean, they're like, they're very normal. So you have like the bottle price for Pappy Van Winkle twenty three year right, which is like the highest end bottling is three twenty nine ninety five. So yeah. you know not cheap, but I'm sure that yeah, if you look for that online, you're talking about five times that probably at a minimum. And what's wild to me is like it's interesting that you say this because I hadn't really thought about it until you kind of brought it up. But like, what it would seem to me in most industries that if there is clear evidence that consumers will pay a much higher price for your product than you're charging for it, you're kind of being like derelict in your responsibility as a company to not up prices. And now maybe the issue is that they are concerned that yes, some number of people on the secondary market will pay huge dollar figures for Pappy Van Winkle 23 or whatever, but maybe the overall consumer base won't support a if they charge a thousand dollars for it instead of you know three hundred and thirty or whatever the whatever their price to the distributor is that gets it on store yeah. shelves at three thirty, obviously you know there's margins and stuff there. But you know if they were to raise a price three x or five x or whatever to get to that point where the the secondary market shows it, yeah. And maybe the issue is that we're not account that the secondary market is accounting for a relatively small number of bottles that are being sold, and that the majority of people who are or businesses or whatever that are buying Pappy are themselves you know, someone's buying it and drinking it and they, but, but again, it's just kind of like, I don't think that holds up super well under a lot of scrutiny. And certainly Sazerac could choose to raise prices, some amount that is meaningful, but not all the way to the, to the kind of established secondary market price. And it's weird because like a thing that this reminds me of is one of the conversations that's been had in wine about the secondary market price for really desirable bottles of wine, yeah. Grand Cru Burgundy in particular, sometimes Colt, Napa Cab, et cetera, is producers bemoaning the fact, especially again in the case of Burgundy, that like the the their price, the, the amount of money they make per bottle that they sell to their, you know, to the importer or whomever is a tiny fraction of what they then eventually see these wines selling for at an auction house, not even many years down the road, but like you know, current vintage stuff or, yeah. or relatively current vintage stuff. And they're always like, they, they bemoan the fact that they are, that the money, the majority of that money is going to some other person or other businesses, not them, even though they're the ones who actually made the thing, but they're a little bit kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because they're in Europe and it's hard for them to get their wines into the American market without going through these established channels. And, you know, many of them have long-term relationships with their importer, et cetera. And it's hard to say like, Hey, we want to, we got to raise the price so that that bottle of, of Grand Cru Burgundy is coming in as the sort of, you know, retail price or, or, you know, kind of wholesale price, even more in line with what we're seeing the secondary market wanting to charge. But Sazerac has a fewer steps to go through and obviously a very strong relationship with its national distribution partner. And like, 
could raise pricing. Yep. And it's yeah, I don't I don't I don't know why they don't. It it does seem like they are uniquely well positioned. And maybe yeah. it's part of a large negotiated set of the deal with the distributor is like, hey, we only, you know, we have to be able to get Pappy to our accounts at this price. I mean, I don't know, but it does seem weird. It's very strange, right? And it's just like at some point, it's just when you look at the prices and you're like, Pappy 10 year for 79 bucks, in what world? Yeah. And that's part of why people are willing to do all these insane things is because of what the fair market price is. So like they're willing to fucking break the law. Yeah. You know, they're willing to say, hold these for me so that I can buy these cheap and then flip them. It's it's a guaranteed flip if you get access. So like maybe Sazerac needs to do something about that. Like, and you know what? Make your margins on the way, guys. Like at at some point, like the reality that this is actually an $80 bourbon is just not true. It's not an $80 bourbon because no one is paying $80 for it. No one's paying. I mean, I think the tenure I've seen on most lists, if if anyone even has it at a bar, the one ounce pour is like 50 bucks plus. Yeah. Like, so guys, come on. You're telling me that a one ounce pour at a bar is, is, at 50 is fair when you're saying that the actual bottle cost should be 79. Yeah. Like raise your prices, raise your prices. And maybe a lot of this stops, but uh, you know, the, the corruption inside of, you know, beverage alcohol is always going to be there. I feel like, uh, you know, in the three tier system, like, let's be honest, like that middle tier is the mob. Like, you know, <laughs> kind of. yeah, they're going to, they're going to figure out ways to hold things for friends and people that do favors for them and all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, at least if this, you know, if this was the, because I think, again, if this was the, if this was happening like at a, a shop, right? If, if Sazerac was selling directly to a shop, like, let's say, I'm not, I don't want to pick on them, but let's say it's Total Wine, right? And they found out that the executives of Total Wine were holding, you know, bottles of Pappy and Elmer T. Lee for themselves. You know, what Sazerac could say is, well, then you guys don't get it anymore yeah. unless they felt that Total Wine was a big enough and important enough client that, like, they should keep giving it to them and just like give them a slap on the wrist. The problem here is that like Cesarac wants their their bottles in Oregon, and the only way to get your wine, you know, I'm sorry, your your alcohol into Oregon is going through the state control board. Yeah. So it is what it is. And yeah, they they need the, the people need to be disciplined. Is is the state government needs to discipline them? I think what's also interesting is that you know the things you're things you're reading about it is that this is going to be the excuse that all the grocers think they need to get public support behind a, a, a public vote to abolish the state control board and just yeah. move to, you know, public sales of alcohol in grocery stores, et cetera, which is again, what we're seeing, you know, that, that comes up every other year or so in New York with the wine companies trying to push, you know, to go into grocery stores. Um, yeah. and the grocers trying to push cause they, you know, they say it's something that helps foot traffic. Um, yeah. and you know, that, that could be true, right? Cause everyone knows that these, that these state control boards limit access for consumers. They limit the amount of, uh, you know, bottles sold on 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 the market, right? Because there's just, there's a very small selection of wines that come in through control states or spirits, etc. And they are only at these state controlled stores, so there's not as many of them in most markets, right? There's usually only a few, which is annoying for consumers. So consumers are you know have less ability to get to these stores, um, you know, and Get it, getting them to grocery store, allowing for private openings of stores is a lot better. Uh, it helps everybody, but it's not going to happen unless you have more scandals like this. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, w- I did want to talk a little bit about that whole piece of it because I think it is an interesting conversation as as our country's sort of patchwork alcohol laws continue to evolve, both at a state-by-state level and in some ways at a federal level. You know, it's certainly true that this is a sort of golden opportunity or a golden example for those who would push for uh, privatization of liquor sales in Oregon to be like, you can't trust the the state government to do this without being deeply corrupt. So kind of why are they even doing this? And I am of a sort of mixed mind on the sort of question of control states versus private sales. I mean, I didn't love when it was privatized here in Washington in certain ways because it was very clearly done in a way that was beneficial to large retailers, to you know, Costco in particular spent a truly astronomical amount of money kind of lobbying and and uh, you know running ads in support of the uh, referendum that was eventually passed. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is a point which bears mentioning, which is that it's no doubt that the tremendous that the diversity of spirits available in Washington State has grown dramatically since sales were privatized because one of the really frustrating things as a bartender, especially when everything went through the state liquor board was that if you were interested in getting a spirit in to Washington state in the control state mm-hmm. days, you had to like beg. Basically you had to know someone at the liquor control board. You had to be like, Hey, I really want to be able to stock. I mean, we're not even talking about some incredibly obscure Amaro here. We're talking about at times like, you know, you had to have like yellow chartreuse. I remember it being like a huge deal right. for for the state to bring it in. Uh, and like the state didn't have, you know, you didn't have like what you would in the sort of like idyllic version of it have like a, you know, a panel of like spirits experts and bartenders and stuff kind of consulting with the the legislative board or the legislative body being like, okay, here's kind of like what we think the state should be focusing on bringing in and like, yeah, we, you know, all that. On the flip side, the one positive that I could say about the state-run liquor stores here in Washington, at least, was they did do a really good job of keeping, like, they were not as profit-driven. I mean, they had to kind of show that they weren't losing money, but they were not operating quite as much in a for-profit sort of space as a private enterprise obviously would, which didn't mean that, like, Prices have, contrary to what the lobbying said, prices have gone up dramatically in Washington since privatization took place. Now, mm-hmm. some of that's because of the way the legislation or the referendum was written where, you know, it, it kind of locked in place a lot of the revenue that the state had derived from alcohol sales via taxes. And so Washington has the highest liquor taxes in, this, in the country, um, which is, you know, like not ideal in some ways. But um the, I think all in all, the the ease of access and the improved selection is, to me, kind of made it a net positive overall. And certainly it's possible for a state like Oregon, should it move in that direction, to do a better job of writing laws that are not quite so you know, punitive towards consumers right. in certain ways. But I, I do think that it's that, you know, we're just in a different space now. A decade later, um, people want more access to more different kinds of spirits and, and everything else that they drink. and it is, you know, the, these control states feel more and more antiquated. I don't know, Adam, are you hearing, you know, kind of, is there drum beats for like in Pennsylvania, in New Hampshire, kind of states near you for them to, you know, abolish these systems or are they more entrenched in those states than perhaps they are in Oregon? So there, you know, the states got in at least that wine would start to be sold in grocery stores, wine and beer. Mm-hmm. And so that changed in Pennsylvania a few years ago. Um, they're still also sold at their own state 
wine shops where they claim that the selection is better. It's <laughs> weird. Um, I don't know if that'll ever happen with liquor. I think there's still like we've talked, like we talked about, you know, last uh, episode when we talked about liquor overtaking beer and wine. There still is in a lot of these state governments like this belief that like liquor is the is is the juice of the demons, and you know they don't want to have you can't have easy access to the liquor, and so. In some of these states, I think there's a there's just not enough public momentum to really push for like, hey, I should be able to buy my whiskey while I pick up my you know my bread and milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same way that people think, well, look, if wine goes with food, then I should be able to buy my bottle of wine when I pick up all my ingredients for dinner. That's a really easy case for the grocers to make. Yeah. Um, and but I but I think you're starting to see that happen like. I don't know if you'll get rid of though the state's controlling Pennsylvania of like what comes into the state. They still want to be the ones that sort of oversee what wines are allowed to be distributed and sold in Pennsylvania. There's just too much of a tax revenue there. Uh, But in, in New York, you're seeing again, and the governor is like pushing for this, this move for uh, wine to be in grocery stores again. And the grocers are really pushing hard. Uh, And I think, you know, it's, it's gaining momentum again, consumers, like the, the laws are kind of silly. Like we have Trader Joe's all over New York City. Consumers here all the time because they follow all the people on TikTok who have Trader Joe's accounts, etc. How amazing the Trader Joe's wines are. And you can't buy them in any Trader Joe's store except one. Right? In the entire one closed? Yeah, closed. So now you can't buy it in any of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it closed because since you're only allowed to have one license as a as a grocery store in the state – they Trader Joe's now needs to pick like what's the best location. And they've decided that 14th street in Manhattan was not the best location. They want to go to something that has, you know, probably even higher uh, foot traffic and that they can have an even bigger store and all this kind of stuff. So they're going to move it to somewhere else. Like total wine decided in New York that in the entire state, the best place for them to be located, located was long Island out of everywhere. Right. right? And so they're on long Island and that's where the only total wine in all of New York state is. And I think everyone thinks it's kind of ridiculous. So all of this stuff is going to get, I think, challenged. But like, you know, yeah. the state makes a good a good argument for the the one liquor license is they're saying, well, we're protecting small businesses. You know, yeah. if we allowed for 30 total wines in the state, what happens to all the wine shops? What if there's a total wine that opens a block away from the mom and pop wine shop? Like, And so I, I see the arguments in in some regard. But, you know, then there is this argument of like, yeah, but access is is just nice for, you yeah. know, so let's have more access. So I, I think the biggest thing, though, is that corruption is going to be there no matter what, even if it was the grocery store. Right. And as long as you have these bottles of alcohol that are worth a lot more than their actual market, like, you know, than their actual listed price, yeah. this is going to continue to happen. You know, undeniably, it's just going to keep happening and there's nothing you can really do about it. Um and, you know, Sazerac could do a better job of trying to stop it. I mean, I'm sure that they are in some in some ways. I'm sure that they're trying. But, like, you know, but the hype think, is so like, good for them. Of, I was going to say, don't you think this? they kind of, like, maybe they're, like, look at a story like this and, like, deep down they're kind of, like, hell yeah. Yeah, like, the free marketing is like amazing. People are committing crimes to get our, our bourbons, even if, like, they would never obviously say that. No, they would never say it, but you're right. Like, I mean, this is – I mean, everyone's written about this story. It's gone everywhere, and what are people willing to literally lose their careers and potentially commit ethical crimes in, as state government officials for? Pappy, <laughs> and like that's that's real good for Pappy. That's real good for Sazerac. It's fascinating. Uh, as always, they win. 
It's fascinating. Well, uh, Zach, I'm excited to, to chat again on Monday. Uh, I hope everyone has an amazing weekend, and I'll see you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.